Hi everyone. Before we get started today, there's a couple of things I wanted to bring up. First, if you enjoy this podcast, you know, a rating on iTunes or your podcast app really goes a long way. And second, if you're enjoying this podcast or there's things about it that you like and things that you don't like, I'm open to feedback. So if you went to my website at apcardiology.com, there's a feedback form up there and I'd love to hear from you. You know, tell me what works, what doesn't work, what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of, etc. So, thank you. Now, today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Catherine Lindley. Dr. Lindley uh, went to medical school down at Emory and then trained in residency in cardiology up here at Barnes-Jewish Hospital and Washington University in St. Louis. One of her primary interests is women's cardiovascular health and peripartum cardiomyopathy. I sat down with her and had a short discussion with her about peripartum cardiomyopathy, how it presents, things to look for, how to manage it, risks for future pregnancies, and a bit more. I found it a very uh, useful conversation to have with her, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Yeah, thank you for meeting with me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, could you just say your name and your title? Uh, yeah, I'm Dr. Catherine Lindley. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the cardiovascular division at Washington University. Thank you. The, I wanted to talk to you today about peripartum cardiomyopathy, which I know is one of your uh, interests, both research and clinical interests. The First off, how do you define peripartum cardiomyopathy? So peripartum cardiomyopathy is a distinct type of heart failure um, that occurs within the last month of pregnancy or within five months after delivery. And it is um, characterized by a reduced ejection fraction with an LV ejection fraction less than 45% in the absence of any other identifiable causes of heart failure. So it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Okay. What are the typical signs and symptoms for a patient presenting with this? So it can actually be um, difficult to identify because many of the symptoms of heart failure are also commonly reported during pregnancy. So for example, shortness of breath and lower extremity edema are frequently reported during normal pregnancy. Um, however, um, women with peripartum cardiomyopathy um, will typically have really true uh, PND and orthopnea. Uh, in addition to shortness of breath and lower extremity edema, and they'll often actually frequently complain of a cough as well related to the pulmonary edema. Okay. And which of those are more specific than others for peripartum cardiomyopathy? I wouldn't say that one is more specific than others, but um, I certainly do frequently see patients complaining of cough, and um, as a result, many women are actually initially misdiagnosed as having pneumonia because they report a cough and they'll have infiltrates on their chest x-ray. Okay. And what's the typical time period around uh, delivery do these, does this present? So although it can occur 
uh, during that wide range of time periods that I uh, recently mentioned, the vast majority of women present within one to two weeks after they deliver. What are the risk factors for developing peripartum cardiomyopathy? So um, there have been uh, several risk factors that are clearly associated with peripartum cardiomyopathy. Um, preeclampsia is um, a definite risk factor for peripartum cardiomyopathy, um, occurring over four times as frequently among women with peripartum cardiomyopathy as the general population. Um, we also know that uh, women who are multiparous, so meaning that they have been pregnant several times, uh, women who are carrying twins, uh, women who are um, African-American or um, extremes of maternal age, so very young or very old mothers. Okay. And then is it more common in certain, uh, certain ethnic groups as well? Um, yeah, so there's actually quite a wide range in incidents across the world. So, for example, in Japan, it's very rare. It occurs in about 1 in 15 to 20,000 women. And in Haiti, it occurs in about 1 in 300 women. Um, it's also um, occurs more frequently in uh, Nigeria and South Africa. So it seems that there are likely some combination of genetic and environmental factors that um, influence the incidence in different parts of the world. Okay. I've heard peripartum cardiomyopathy described as being one of the inflammatory cardiomyopathies. Do you think that is an accurate description or, or a misnomer? And what is the cause? What, what do we currently believe is the driving factor behind peripartum cardiomyopathy? Unfortunately, we still don't know exactly what causes peripartum cardiomyopathy. Many different etiologies have been investigated in the past, including autoimmune etiology, viral etiology, idiopathic cardiomyopathy, you know, genetic uh, cardiomyopathy. Um, however, the leading theory at this time is that it's likely uh, related to myocardial damage as a result of angiogenic insult. So near the end of pregnancy, the placenta um, releases a significant number of anti-angiogenic factors. Um, and th those factors are released in much higher levels among women with preeclampsia. So it's likely that women with genetic predisposition who are unable to tolerate that anti-angiogenic insult then go on to develop overt cardiomyopathy. Does that, is that meaning to say that preeclampsia and peripartum cardiomyopathy are on long a spectrum of disease? Or are these two separate entities that just have a lot of clinical overlap? They likely share some of the same underlying pathophysiology, although it's not likely that they are the same disease themselves. So um, as I mentioned before, preeclampsia is associated with a more significant anti-angiogenic insult, and we think that that does contribute to peripartum cardiomyopathy and a susceptible host. So it may be that depending on underlying maternal genetic factors, uh, women who have some susceptibility may then be unable to tolerate the insult of preeclampsia. How do you then treat someone with peripartum cardiomyopathy? So for the most part, we treat peripartum cardiomyopathy the same way we would any other non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. We start off with diuretics to relieve pulmonary congestion and then initiate afterload reduction. If the mother is still pregnant, we use hydralazine and nitrates for afterload reduction because ACE inhibitors and ARBs are contraindicated during pregnancy. 
However, once the mother is delivered, um, I'll typically switch the patient over to uh, an ACE inhibitor such as enalapril. Enalapril uh, has been uh, shown to be safe while breastfeeding, and so um, that's a nice option if the mother wants to continue to breastfeed. Um, once the patient is euvolemic or at least approaching euvolemia, we can initiate a beta blocker, um, usually long-acting metoprolol or carbetalol, which are both safe for either pregnancy or breastfeeding. And then in the postpartum setting, um, we recommend initiation of spironolactone, although that medication is not safe while uh, the mother is still pregnant. Um, there are a few important things you need to think about while treating a mom with peripartum cardiomyopathy. Number one is... Um, each of these patients should be considered for anticoagulation. Uh, the postpartum state is a markedly hypercoagulable period, and so if you have a dilated, um, poorly functioning ventricle with a lot of stasis, uh, and in addition, a hypercoagulable state that puts these patients at very high risk for the development of LV thrombus. So it's typically recommended that they be anticoagulated for about 6 to 12 weeks if they have a, an ejection fraction less than 35%. Um, warfarin is not... Uh, the preferred method during pregnancy because of the risk of teratogenicity, although it is safe in the postpartum period and while breastfeeding. Um, while mom is still pregnant, we'll typically use heparin or uh, Lovenox, which are safe in pregnancy. Gotcha. Okay. Then what is the likelihood of recovery and how do we predict recovery for these patients? So the good news is that about 75% of patients will have at least some degree of LV recovery. Um, there um, are several factors that are associated with increased likelihood of recovery. Um, we know that if um, the patient has a very dilated ventricle, so if the left ventricle is larger than six centimeters, they're less likely to recover their function. If they start out with a very low ejection fraction, less than 30%, they're less likely to recover their function. And unfortunately, also African-American patients are less likely to have recovery of their ventricular function. Unfortunately, um, we can't definitely say that just because a patient has a low EF, they won't recover or vice versa because even a small portion of those patients who are very sick to begin will have full recovery and some portion of patients who have milder dysfunction will not recover. But there are some predictors we can kind of use as guidelines. Okay. And then how about any additional like, quantitative markers on echo like strain or any MRI studies that have been done? Um, there's somewhat limited data regarding that, although there have been some small studies done. Um, it does appear that women who have late gadolinium enhancement um, have a worse prognosis or less likely to recover their ejection fraction, more likely to um, have hospitalizations. Um, it's also likely that women who have impaired strain don't truly have normal myocardium. Um, so even if their ejection fraction recovers to normal, they probably are in more of a state of, um, of remission rather than true recovery. Mm -hmm. Okay. Most of these women do recover. How do you counsel them about future pregnancies? So we definitely don't recommend becoming pregnant within the next year after diagnosis to allow time for the ventricle to recover. After one year, we then assess the ventricular function, and the cutoff point that we use is 50%. So if the left ventricular ejection fraction is better than 50%, then they have about a 25% risk of having recurrent heart failure or decline in their ejection fraction with subsequent pregnancies. 
although their mortality does not seem to be elevated above the general population. On the other hand, if their ejection fraction does not recover to above 50%, they're at a 40 to 50% chance of having recurrent heart failure symptoms and have about a 20 to 25% risk of mortality. So we absolutely discourage recurrent pregnancies for women with complete or without complete recovery of their ejection fraction. And for women who have complete recovery of their ejection fraction, um, it's not absolutely contraindicated, but we do caution them that they may have recurrent heart failure and they may not have full recovery of their ejection fraction after the next pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, and how about how about the use of bromocryptine uh, in the use in the treatment for uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy? So there's been in- a lot of interest in um, whether or not bromocryptine could be useful for the treatment of peripartum cardiomyopathy. What bromocryptine does is it prevents the release of prolactin. Um, the reason that this makes pathophysiologic sense is because um, during a normal pregnancy, prolactin is released, and in women with peripartum cardiomyopathy, there's an increase in the cleavage of the prolactin into a smaller 16 kilodalton fragment, which um, is anti-angiogenic and causes insult to the myocardium. So the thought is that if you re- if you reduce the prolactin from being released, then you can reduce the insult to the myocardium and um, improve outcomes. There have been several small studies um, that have shown variable results regarding the efficacy of using bromocryptine. Unfortunately, it does not um, have a clear benefit, and it does have some potentially negative side effects as well. It is associated with increased risk of other cardiovascular events, such as heart attack and stroke. So we do not currently use this as a routine part of care. Okay. Now, what are the new and exciting areas and questions that are being asked in current research? So there is a lot of exciting research going on in peripartum cardiomyopathy right now. I think that we we really kind of stalled for a long time in understanding what causes the the disease, and therefore that limits us in terms of targeted treatments and prevention strategies. Um, however, there are a lot of um, both human and um, animal studies going on right now that are further investigating the relationship of preeclampsia and peripartum cardiomyopathy and the possibility of a, the anti-angiogenic uh, hypothesis uh, regarding the development of peripartum cardiomyopathy. There are also studies ongoing looking at the use of bromocryptine, and um, there are several um, cohort studies that are ongoing. Um, recently, data from the IPAC study, which was the largest prospective study on peripartum cardiomyopathy with 100 patients, um, that was published just a couple of years ago, and then there's also an international study that's based in Europe as well. Okay. What would be your words uh, of advice for, you know, a community internist who's being called to see you know, someone around the postpartum period, and when should they suspect peripartum cardiomyopathy? Well, it's really important to have a very high index of suspicion for peripartum cardiomyopathy because we know that delay in the diagnosis is associated with worse outcomes. Um, So although shortness of breath and edema um, are common in the pregnant and postpartum period, um, true P&D and orthopnea are not normal pregnancy symptoms. Um, And if a woman presents postpartum with a cough, that also should raise your concern. 
Um, a good physical exam is really useful. Um, elevation of neck veins or rails in the lungs would certainly be uh, concerning for peripartum cardiomyopathy. And really some very simple and quick tests can rule out uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy. For example, BNP should be normal in pregnant women. And although it goes up slightly with preeclampsia, um, if it's significantly elevated, that should really raise your concern for peripartum cardiomyopathy. Um, and then an echocardiogram um, can quickly rule in or out the disease uh, based on the ejection fraction. Great. Do you have any last words or final comments? Well, I think this is an exciting area of research and patient care to be involved in right now. Um, there's really a lot of progress being made regarding the understanding and treatment of the disease. And um, it's a great feeling to be able to take care of a, a very sick young mom and help her get better and go home and return to work and take care of her family. Um, there's really going to be an increasing need for uh, physicians who specialize in caring for pregnant women with heart disease because um, cardiovascular disease is actually currently the leading cause of maternal mortality in the United States, and the number of women with cardiovascular disease who are pregnant is growing. Well, that's a lot of interesting stuff. I thank you for your time. Anytime. To close, I'll recap a couple of the major points that Dr. Lindley had discussed. First, when considering peripartum cardiomyopathy, Usually, their patients within, within the first couple of weeks after delivery. The things that they'll present with that aren't typical in a normal pregnancy would be a cough, PND, and orthopnea. If it has any of those things, you know, you can easily check an echo, BNP, and you would have your diagnosis right away. Now, for treatment during pregnancy, you gotta remember to avoid the ACEs and the ARBs, but hydrolysis, nitrates, they're your friends. After delivery, and now is a good choice if the mother's going to be breastfeeding. And then don't forget about anticoagulation. Those patients are at higher risk, and an anticoagulation may be a good choice for them. Poor prognostic factors include a dilated left ventricle of greater than 6 centimeters. And the lower the ejection fraction, the more unlikely that patient is going to recover. And then in considering for future pregnancies, wait at least a year after after that initial peripartum cardiomyopathy episode has resolved. If their ejection fraction has increased to greater than 50%, their risk is you know, about 25% of having another future heart failure episode. If it's less than 50%, they're at a much higher risk. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I've Used for My Theme Music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.